With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? host of the remnant podcast brought to you by the dispatch of dispatch media um i'm going to dispatch i oh know it's not the right word dispense with the usual uh pleasantries and um uh boilerplate and 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 the long list of lawyer advised interaction warnings but do not listen to this podcast if you were allergic to its contents and move straight uh to our guest today because we are on a, a time budget here uh, old friend of mine, f- first uh, encounter with him was when he was an intern at the Na- at National Review. Um, uh, known him a long time since. He's uh, a uh, longtime film reviewer uh, for National Review who on the side um, writes for the New York Times and writes many excellent books. His latest is The Deep Places. A memoir of illness and discovery. It is a laugh riot. It's the feel good book of the year. Um, I cannot <laughs> wait for the movie. Uh, Ross Douthit, welcome back to the Remnant. Jonah, it is great to be back. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm putting that blurb on the cover because you know if I get one more review that says this book is a harrowing read, my you know my my agent and editor are you know are going to throw me out the window. So laugh riot is going literally above the author's name on the paperback edition you have my blessing um it is uh, for the listeners who don't know uh many normal people maybe many compassionate and erudite people who read this book will want to take a break from reading it um by putting their head in the oven but not me (laughs) i'm just a different kind of guy um i'm like yeah take that douthit as i read the whole thing serves you right douthit how come you got that column doubt that now you now who's laughing no i i joke i kid um but um why don't you uh thoroughly depress our our listeners and give them the broad brushstrokes of this memoir which is 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 like with everything you do beautifully written and 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 like with much of what you do deeply depressing um, <laughs> well so the book i mean the book is a, it's basically about how god or the universe um sort of adopted that laughing Jonah Goldberg voice um, uh-huh. toward me for about, um, you know, well, the worst of it was a couple of years um, for the whole story. It's about five or six years. Um, but basically, when I was about 35, which was six going on seven years ago now, um, my wife and I decided to embark on this kind of rural fantasy that we, and I'll be frank, especially I, had always harbored. Um, I think it's sort of a common 
common thing with a certain kind of conservative pundit to have the idea that you're going to leave the corrupt metropolis behind um, and move to, you know, some sort of rural retreat and raise 13 children and chickens and drive antique automobiles and, you know, break all the street lights near you so nobody can drive. The Whitaker Chambers option, right? The I Whitaker mean, the Whitaker Chambers option, the Russell Kirk uh, right. option. In the um, Costa, yeah. So we took it. And immediately, well, literally while we were in the process of moving, I became horribly, horribly sick uh, while we were still in Washington, D.C. And, you know, sort of phantom heart attacks, insomnia, body pain all over. Um, I lost 40 pounds in a couple of months. And no doctor in Washington could figure out what was wrong with me. Uh, And then when we finally got to Connecticut, it became pretty clear that I had acquired probably literally during the house inspection on this three acre overgrown farmhouse that we had we had bought a case of Lyme disease, which for your listeners who aren't lucky enough to inhabit the northeast parts of the upper Midwest, um, you know, parts of the Appalachians. And I mean, really, there's actually lots of places where it's spreading now. Oh, it's it was been spreading of, for a while. Yeah. Right? It's it's but it was a northeast disease to begin with. It's named for a couple of towns on the Connecticut shore. And it's a tick-borne illness that causes many of the symptoms that I had, these sort of weird full body meltdown kind of symptoms, and is incredibly controversial because for those who don't get better from it with a short course of antibiotics, and I was, as it turned out, one of those that lucky percentage. Um, there's no clear agreement on how to treat it. And there's sort of an official establishment view that says, we don't know why you're still sick, but you definitely shouldn't take any more antibiotics because that's not safe. You should just wait and see and hope you get better. And then there's a lot of outsider-ish maverick style doctors who say, no, if you are sick and treat something and the patient doesn't get better, they're probably still sick with the same disease and you should keep treating them. And after a bunch of false starts and blind alleys, I, you know, ended up sort of following the outsider non-CDC approved course of treatment and did a lot of, you know, took a lot of antibiotics, did some stranger things and very, very gradually did in fact get better to the point where I'm well enough that I figured I should write the book and tell the world about just how weird things can get. Um, I'm probably like 90 or 95% better. I feel normal you know, most, most hours of most days still have some symptoms. But the book is basically a mixture of uh, sort of medical mystery story, an account of scientific controversy, a pretty personal sort of even exhibitionist (laughs) portrait (laughs) of my own suffering and sort of what it's like to go through something like this while you are trapped in a rural house with your pregnant wife and small children. and and also sort of, I think, hopefully a more general window into the broader experience of chronic illness, which I think a lot of people are encountering through the mysteries of long term COVID right now, but which is, you know, takes a lot of forms for a lot of people and a lot of people struggle in different ways to get better from it. Um, and finally, it's just kind of a Stephen King story. Um, that's, you know, if I'm selling it to people as a good read, (laughs) not just to like put your head in the oven kind of thing. I think if you approach it as a nonfiction version of a Stephen King novel with a reasonably happy ending, 
um, that hopefully would be enough to get to get you hooked on the book. So, so how's that? How's that for an account? That was pretty good. That was pretty good. So I um I gotta say you know so I, I I'm only in the opening chapters, but I've been poking around in it for a while, and you know as one does sometimes one searches for things to see if they talk about certain things and whatnot. And I find it interesting, you know, I listened to you on another podcast and you were talking about, and I knew some of this already, but your religious, the, the religious journeys that your family were on when you were a teen, you tried some Pentecostal type things, you tried whatever, you ended up as a Roman Catholic, um, and, uh, which I would love to hear, I think listeners would like to hear more about in a second, but I fully expected um given your obsession with movies given your um harrowing job-like experience um given the inability of the medical establishment to fix your problem that there would be maybe even a whole chapter or at least a paragraph on the book in the movie the exorcist <laughs> um because one of the things that people forget about how brilliantly that movie handled it and and to and the book too um is the limits of reason and the limits of modern technology to get at the heart of problems i'm not saying that i was expecting you to say you were possessed by a demon or anything like that but the it the story is really good at showing the frustrating limits of scientific knowledge even in a hyper technological age and it just seemed like the sweet spot place to go so you know i can so there's a that. little so if you get to the end well so there's two there's two things i tried to do in the book um one is to tell so there's sort of there there's a, a pretty straightforward story where there's a scientific controversy about lyme disease there are two schools of thought on how to treat it um i followed the more eccentric, non-establishment school of thought. It mostly worked. I think that school is correct. I would like to persuade reasonable people who don't believe in, you know, new age ideas about, you know, about whatever, uh, or exorcisms for that matter, that this is true, right? So, so part of the right. book is making a what I think is a, a pretty grounded scientific argument about the treatment of this condition, and I think potentially other conditions as well. Then there's, you know, some weirder stuff <laughs> that I did. <laughs> and I literally have a chapter, I think it's chapter seven, where I say at the start, you know, look, if you have been persuaded by this sort of pretty grounded argument that I've tried to make, um, but are someone who doesn't like fringe medicine and weird supernatural stuff, you can skip this chapter. <laughs> um, but that's the chap. that's partially the chapter for you, Jonah, right? I'll have it to goes skip ahead into again, yeah. both the weirder, both some weirder, you know, medical stuff I did, putting magnets on my body and having sound waves run, run through my flesh to try and shatter bacteria the way a, uh, a high frequency shatters a wine glass, you know, fun, fun stuff like that. And some of the, you know, some, some other weird, you know, things that felt like sort of God, um, winking at you here and there that happened to me throughout. Um, so that's one, one way that I tried to get at some of that stuff by sort of giving it in sort of putting it all in one chapter. But then at the end of the book, I don't, I don't reference, uh, the exorcist itself, 
but I do talk a little bit about parallels between this kind of um, this kind of illness and the Catholic, uh, specifically, but not only Catholic stories of possession are pretty much a human universal. But the experience of possession, because um, there is there is some overlap. With the difference being that, as I understand it, the experience of possession is a feeling like you have been sort of taken over by a malevolent intelligence that wishes you ill. Whereas the experience sort of like of, the GOP, sort of like <laughs> right, an invasion of the body snatchers, <laughs> right? To use the famous yeah, yeah. Goldberg Goldberg on Trumpist uh, account, but then with with this kind of sort of what feels like a really invasive chronic illness, there isn't an intelligence, right? There's there's no mm -hmm. being that gets in you and starts speaking in Latin and you know, sort of yelling at the doctors or at the exorcists. Um, but there is a sort of there's a sort of mindless takeover, right? You you mm -hmm. do really feel. I mean, there's a lot of variation in how people experience this, but for me, it was often this experience of being sort of a prisoner in my own body, sort of aware of my own mind, my own self, still being present and sort of capable of writing newspaper columns and even going on podcasts sometimes. But the the flesh, right, the physical frame, the skeleton, the muscles, all of that was sort of in the hands of this sort of, yeah, this kind of mindless, mindless enemy bent on inflicting pain. Um, so, I, yeah, I think reading reading this kind of experience through, you know, through a sort of um, possession like um, framework is actually totally, totally reasonable, even if I was not my set like I did not seek out I prayed a lot I didn't seek out an exorcist and I don't think that would have been at all the appropriate response yeah. um so let's go back because like one of the things that comes through all you know your, your times piece and in, in, in the opening chapters of the book um like it's like a lot of bad stories um you know, like it's weird. I mean, uh, this is a weird analogy, but as you know, I drive cross country a lot with the family and all that. And it is always amazing how unbelievably tedious parts of the drive can be. But then a week later, your brain does this thing where it, it, it compacts that data into just a memory. Oh yeah. There was a lot of long, boring driving. You don't, you don't remember any, of, you don't have any of the of granularity. Wheat. Yeah, there's so a lot of wheat, wheat. right? Um, and there's something about when you see wheat in that large a volume that you almost have to slightly pronounce the silent H in it. Wheat. wheat. There's just so much wheat. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, my point is, is that the uh, when you're sick for a long time, there's this horrible dichotomy of every moment is much longer when you're sick. For you, um, you know, time moves much slower just when you're sick and you're full of not just sick, but full of dread and that kind of thing. And but like you cannot convey that to the reader in anything like real verisimilitude because you just beat up the reader. You know, it's like the it's like the carving of the whale chapter in Moby Dick. Right. I mean, at some point you just have to say, take my word for it. It really sucked. And it was like a daily horrible experience, right? But um, 
like how much of your, just to give a sense to, to listeners and like how much of your average every day, your mental bandwidth was taken up with either distraction from pain or, or that sort of slow panic about trying to of like not knowing what's wrong with you. I mean, at the worst it was, you know, 90% of my conscious existence was either experiencing pain itself, um, thinking about, you know, thinking about what treatments I was trying and trying to analyze whether they were working, reading about <laughs> chronic illness. Um, mm -hmm. It was, you know, you, yeah, you could sort of exclude in certain ways. The only time that I could sort of exclude from that experience completely was when I had to sit down and try and write a newspaper column. And, yeah. you know, and this also started in the summer of 2015 um, when literally Trump came down the uh, escalator, you know, a month after I had my first kind of breakdown. So it was this weird thing where it was like I had gotten sick and then the whole world had entered this fever dream. And I felt yeah. like there was some alternate timeline where I never got bit by a tick you know, and Marco Rubio was running against Hillary Clinton, right? And, um, but no, I mean, and that's, you know, the, the, the book is very short, um, not super short, but it's not, it's not a long book. And it sort of deliberately tries to be a page turner for precisely the reason that you described, because, you know, you can just sort of, um, wallow in the physical experience in a way that doesn't, you know, is, obviously true to how it feels yourself, but doesn't convey that much to the, to the reader. And there's a, there's a quote I use from a, um, a French writer in the 19th century who had syphilis in sort of a chronic untreatable form. And he said, you know, the pain, something like, you know, the thing about pain is that it's always new to the sufferer. Um, but for everyone, everyone else gets bored with it. Everyone gets bored with it, but me. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the problem when you're in it, right? Is that, you know, you, it's all consuming. It becomes the thing you want to talk about all the time. And one of the big challenges for people in relationships with people who have chronic illness is figuring out how to handle that, where the person yeah. that you love and care about is always sort of overspilling with unhappiness. And you, in this case, you was usually my pregnant, you know, stressed out wife. You become sort of a sponge absorbing that overspilling unhappiness. Um, so part of the book too is I think, you know, hopefully like providing some some advice and assistance to people who aren't sick but know people who have these kind of long-term problems to sort of help them think about how how you deal with it. Because it is that that challenge is it's one kind of challenge for the person suffering from it and a related but somewhat different challenge for people trying to be good spouses and good friends without being carried down into the darkness themselves. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's an interesting point. I mean, I, there are all sorts of, I mean, this is one of the reasons why I'm, you know, I think I'm too deep in the weeds on this attempt to bait you, but one of the reasons why I am, um, have such skepticism for things like mass population attempts at social solidarity and, and, you know, whether, under whatever label you want to put it, nationalism, socialism, you know, communitarianism, whatever, is that when you actually look at your own personal life, the number of people and anything bad, when bad things happen, particularly bad things like what you experience, which take a long time, right? It's not like some emergency kind of moment where everyone can drop their, their 
farm equipment and run to save a little girl down the well, but it's like an enduring problem. It turns out that like there's a limit to the number, there's sort of a Dunbar's number to the number of people who really care about you. And both in good times and bad, really, right? It's like when you get married, the number of people who are legitimately excited for you is is much smaller than the total number of people you know. When you have your first kid, the people who are legitimately excited about it, um, and I don't mean that they wish that other people wish you poorly or anything, but it just doesn't, you know, it's like, oh, that's great. Good for them. The, you know, the number of people who would truly inconvenience themselves for repeated acts of compassion for you as a friend or as a family member, just the numbers are, are, are modest and that's, and that's all they need to be in a real life to have a rich and fulfilling life. But this idea that you can take the, I mean, not to get all German social science on you, but that you can take that Gemeinschaft and apply I wouldn't have come on the podcast if I wasn't ready to be, you know, German social science. I, I, fair so, enough. So, so that, that that can't be scaled up to the Gesellschaft, right? And, um, <laughs> and, uh, and I'm sorry, the Catholic Church can't do it. Nobody can do it. Not in a sustainable, scalable, you know, steady state kind of way. It's sort of like the Phil Graham thing when he talked, you know, this famous story where he was talking to a group of voters and. He, someone asked him what his position, some woman asked him what his position on education is. And he said, well, I start from the philosophical assumption that, uh, nobody can love their kids more than my, than no one can love my kids more than I do. And my wife does. And some woman says, no, 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 that's not true. Um, um, I love your kids just as much as you do. And Phil Graham says, oh yeah, what are their names? Right. Um, the, you know, Tell me about a little bit about like, what did you learn about the microcosm of people in your real life and versus the people who are, you know, professional friends, whatever. I mean, I didn't know you were this sick, but I mean, I'm not sure I would have, it would have been very weird if I drove up to Connecticut with chicken soup for you. But you get my point is that there's yes. just this yeah, yeah, much yeah, yeah. smaller no, there's a, chain there's of a collapsing. There's a collapsing function that happens. Mm -hmm. And in our, in our case, it was accelerated by the fact that we had literally moved away from the city from left yeah. a bunch of our young couple friends behind and we had this whole plan that we were going to get to this you know country house and sort of build a new social web um in this in this small town and we did nothing of the sort because we were incapable of it um so yeah so then it's sort of you're left with your family and in you know in my case both of my parents were in Connecticut in Abby my wife's case her mom was nearby so you have parents you have your spouse our children are very young and they're you know with them it's a question of like well you have to you know try and protect them basically from what's from what's going on to keep to keep this from sort of overspilling on onto them um and then you know yeah there's there's this sense well there's two things right there, one thing is that the the kind of solidarity that you're talking about i think is possible in moments of extreme crisis yeah, um, and in yeah. fact, people tend, there's a fair amount of social science literature showing that, you know, with exceptions, people tend to behave very well, surprisingly well in crises, earthquakes, mm -hmm. natural disasters, people sort of rise to the occasion. And I think that's true in, though not in pandemics too, which is important. Well, not, well, pandemics last too long. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but right. Yes. And, but also where, yeah, where there's a risk of infection from doing good, it's a different context from where you're just sort of trying to help people through through something that sort of happened in a discreet way, like like an earthquake. Um, 
But I think that's true in personal lives as well. If you, you know, have a sort of clear and present moment, like, you know, you are an alcoholic who hits bottom and needs an intervention, you, you know, you have a terminal cancer diagnosis. I think the network of friends that will respond in just real ways to that is larger than the much larger than the network of friends that can sort of sustain help and assistance over a longer period of time. And that's, that's, that's just the reality. There's no, there's no sort of escaping it, but you still need some, you need some, it's the, the network that you have that sort of remains when you have this consolidation then becomes really, really important in part, mm -hmm. you know, for the reasons I just alluded to where the suffering person even if there isn't anything you can do to help them, just being present for them is important. And yeah. sharing the burden of, in my case, just listening to them rant and curse <laughs> sometimes, you know, is is actually a really good thing to do. And when you're the sufferer too, you also don't, in the moment, you may not appreciate what your friends are trying to do for you. It's a different version of that sort of telescoping that happens with a long drive across the country. Like I had this close friend who came to visit sort of by surprise a couple times in our rural, our Overlook Hotel situation. <laughs> and each time when he was actually there, I was, you know, I almost felt worse. It was like, oh, now we have to entertain him. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I just want to go hide in my room and you know, I'm in so much pain. But then once he's gone, you have this sense of like, well, wait, that was actually an act of love him coming right. so far to and and that's. That's tremendous. That's important too, right? Like what lasts of the act is not even necessarily what you're experiencing while the act of generosity is going on, but what it tells you for the longer term about somebody actually caring, caring about you. Um, and again, yes, in a way that is not replicable at a 100 person scale, let alone a societal scale. Um, so uh, knock on wood, I mean, I got all sorts of middle-aged health problems that come from a lifetime of uh, hard living of, of, of treating my body like it was a temple of a religion I hated. And, um, <laughs> and I shall desecrate you and um, I shall use you as a stable. Um, but uh, one of the weird things about my friendship with Steve Hayes these days is that I wouldn't say we talk as much about, midlife body ache problems as we do uh, about the business but the ratio is more impressive than i would have imagined at the beginning of it but um when but i've had some really horrible experiences with the healthcare profession generally speaking um about loved ones um um you know my dad had a very long and complicated death um my brother had a much shorter and less complicated, but far more horrible death because I was the one who had to pull a plug on him and the hospital had not done its job right. And he basically woke up and, um, in a sort of involuntary reaction and it was beyond terrible, which I don't need to get into. I mean, he, he was brain dead, but we, we were not prepped for it. He was not prepped for it. It was a terrible, terrible thing. And, um, and I've had other, you know, lesser experiences, um, um, you know, personally, all that kind of stuff. But one of the things that I've come away with is even though I think most people in the medical profession are legitimately trying to do the 
do right. You know, and that's why they chose one of the reasons why they chose the medical profession. There is something that happens to the human brain when you have to tell people stuff that they don't want to hear all the time. And it manifests itself in all of these strange um, tells where they only look at you in the eye for a very brief statement. And then they look over your shoulder and say, oh, I'm going to go deal with it. And they answer your question in a way that seems dispositive and, and exhaustive, but in reality was perfectly phrased so that the time bomb of your follow-up question only occurs after you hung up the phone or after they've walked away. Um, you know, did you find yourself starting to have like just as a class anger at the, at the medical profession? I mean, were you just, just I just don't like these yes. people. I, I mean, yes. I mean, not, you know, the, so there were sort of, there were sort of two discrete phases to my experience. There was a phase, a short, a relatively short phase when I just was in horrible pain and couldn't get any kind of diagnosis. Um, and for some chronic ill, many chronically ill patients that goes on a lot longer for me, it was sort of compressed, but I into like four or five months, but I saw a lot of doctors in that time Mm -hmm. because, you know, Abby was pregnant. We were moving. I was like, I can't, be sick now i have to figure this out and those with those doctors it was essentially this kind of once they'd done the tests and realized that they didn't have a simple answer it was this sort of exaggerated kindness i I shouldn't Mm. say exaggerated i mean i I do think they i I do think they meant me well pronounced kindness pronounced kindness joined to this sort of what you know this this really quick recourse to mystery that mm-hmm. I found very striking where, you know, I think a lot of people hear about the chronically ill and they say, oh, these are people who should get a mental health diagnosis or maybe have gotten one and are just resisting it because they think something else is wrong with them. But in reality, I would have welcomed a specific mental health <laughs> diagnosis. <laughs> if someone yeah. had said, Ross, you have Munchausen syndrome and, you know, you need to you need to see this kind of psychiatrist to be treated for this or you know, you have this form of clinical depression that's manifesting itself in, you know, imaginary physical ailments and you need to take this SSRI. I, you know, I mean, I did, I did try antidepressants, anti-anxiety mm-hmm. medication, all these things, but that's not what you get when doctors don't know what's going on. When doctors don't know what's going on, they say, well, you're stressed and there's a lot about the mind and the body that we don't understand and good luck to you. And I mean, look, this, the system is not set up for an individual doctor to really like pursue really hard patient cases. Right. Mm -hmm. And the, and so it's, it is that sort of pivot to mystery is institutionally very understandable. Um, but there is something horrible about it that, um, I did that, um, Megan O'Rourke, who is, uh, a poet and writer for places like slate for a long time, uh, she has a book coming out next year about her own experience with chronic illness, which basically was the sort of four months that I had of not knowing at all what was wrong with me, except for her, it ran for 10 years. And she says she learned that doctors have this phrase, heart sink patients, which means that the doctor's heart sinks <laughs> when the patient <laughs> oh, starts talking because the patient just has too many problems and it's not mm. plausible and the doctor can't, can't deal with it. And, you know, that again, this is connected to the the way medical systems are set up and chronic illness is a really, really hard problem. Um, but um, 
but yeah, I mean, it makes when you are when you are in terrible pain and no one can help you, it makes you very angry to be told that life is mysterious by people whose profession is to demystify. Right, right. right. You're going to doctors not for mystery. Like you're not going for sort of the new age account of the human body. You're going for answers. And then with then with Lyme itself, it's a little different because there you have these two schools, right? These mm. two warring camps. Um, and there I have a mix of incredible anger towards the camp that says you shouldn't treat Lyme disease long term because part of me is like you live, especially in the Northeast, these doctors live surrounded by people who are going yeah. through these terrible agonies and who do get better with this long term treatment. And there is, you know, really good scientific research indicating that Lyme disease persists in bodies that have been treated with antibiotics. Like, why can't you acknowledge this reality? So I have that anger. But then I also have understanding where, how did I get better? I got better by taking like up to 12 different antibiotics <laughs> over yeah. five years with a lot of weirder stuff mixed in. If that's the treatment for Lyme disease, how do you model that, right? How do you mm -hmm. fit it into the double-blind, placebo-controlled study. And I think that's the reason that particular divide persists, that the, 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 it's like with the, in Thomas Kuhn's The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, to, to overturn a paradigm, it's not enough to say, here are the things the paradigm gets wrong. You have to have your alternative ready to go. You can't get rid of the Ptolemaic cosmos until you have the Galilean cosmos right. as an alternative. And with this, with this kind of chronic illness, the critique of the don't do anything paradigm is really strong. But the alternative paradigm of like, you know, take a zillion antibiotics for years and years and years is not clear enough and simple enough, I think, um, to, to sort of over, overturn it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you look, you know, I, I think everyone, whether it's going through having a loved one die or suffer or going through a weird illness everyone has encounters with the medical system that 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 weaken weaken their faith in the system which is not the same as losing faith in science with a capital s i think right. of a lot of the stuff i did as perfectly scientifically grounded but that distinction is really important between science as a system and science as a mode of seeking truth yeah, no, it's a really important and interesting point, which I hadn't really thought of that there's a medical equivalent to hard cases make bad law, but hard cases make bad medicine too, right? The system yep. is designed to figure out which checklist applies to you and then do the stuff on the checklist that goes with that checklist, right? And not to bring it back, this was not intended to back to the exorcist, but uh, on, on Pod's recommendation, I... Um, Watched the first episode. My wife and I watched the first episode of this Paramount se series called Evil, which oh, is basically yeah, like the, the Catholic, uh, the yeah, the it's the Catholic X Files. Church, yep, yeah, and it's almost it's a little over the top how Catholic X Files, skeptical science based woman, uh, a believer uh, man, and you know, and he wants the skeptic with him to kick the tires on every possible exorcism case and blah 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 blah. But anyway, the 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 Mulder character, who I believe was Luke Cage in the in the in the Power Man Netflix series. Yep. Um, yes, I think so. Uh, um, he he has this great little line where he says, "Look, the problem with science is that it is it is built up about about 
replicable phenomena. And, um, and the whole point of miracles is that they're not replicable and therefore science is kind of blind to them. And it kind of reminds me of your case is like, you know, if you have a pathology or you have a, you have a, a rule book that says, this is what Lyme disease looks like. And then someone presents a very atypical chronic kind of Lyme disease. The system can't, it's not just that the system can't see the round hole. It doesn't know how to recognize a round hole and deal with it. And it, it, it's, a, it's a problem with systems. It's an interesting thing I hadn't really thought about. Yeah, no, absolutely. But, but with the distinction that you, you know, I, uh, as a believing Roman Catholic, I think that more scientists should believe in miracles, but I don't expect science to sort of, you know, sort of treat mir- sort of enfold miracles into the system that it builds to assess and understand the world. Right. right? By definition, like I, it can't. By definition, right? by definition, it can't. Whereas you do ultimately want a science that can unfold as many outlying cases as possible. Right. And that, that I think is the challenge here that you, you have a sort of mold of medicine that, yeah, it does. Right. It says hard cases, hard cases make, make bad medicine. And we want, you know, we don't, we don't want to overtreat. We don't want to overdiagnose. We want to always say first do no harm. Um, but at this point, and y- you know, you see this with COVID right now, right? Where you have a disease comes on suddenly and it produces, it's basically a sort of fast forward button on what you get with Lyme disease or chronic fatigue syndrome or a lot of these chronic conditions that have sort of crept up on society. COVID goes fast forward. Tons of people get it in an incredibly short amount of time. And then you have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who are the outliers. Mm-hmm. And when you're dealing with numbers on those, that scale, you can't, you, you have to have a system that can, right. can deal right. with them. Um, and that's how you get that system. It's a really, it's a really hard question because the system we have evolved for good reasons as well as bad ones. Um, but you, but you have, you have to try and figure out how to enfold outlier cases that constitute, like in the case of Lyme disease, the outlier cases are not 0.0001%. They're like anywhere from five to 15%. And those are big numbers that science needs to be able to reckon with. So I just had Paul Bloom, uh, one of my favorite psychologists on, uh, that was a great conversation. And, you know, one of the things that I'm, you know, really smart. One of the you know, one of the places where I've actually, people ask me, you know, given, given the givens in the last five years or so, you know, where have you changed your mind about things? Cause people, some people think I've just become a crazy lib and all this kind of nonsense. And then, um, there are other people, um, you know, who are like, well, you know, you wrote this book called liberal fascism and how can you not be outraged by vaccine mandates or whatever? And my argument to that is that, you know, fact that there's no mainstream understanding of political theory or liberal theory, classical liberal theory, that doesn't make room for the state doing illiberal things in the face of a pandemic or a meteor, you know, or a war. I mean, these are the things, the few times where the the state is allowed to go outside its lanes. But anyway, the one place where I am, I've really changed my mind on this stuff is on the sort of the role of psychology and politics. And I still think Adorno is garbage. I still think, you know, uh, what Hofstetter did with Adorno and all that stuff is garbage. But 
um, Jonathan Haidt and Paul Bloom have explained to me, you know, have convinced me and a few other people have ex- convinced me that there's, there's a lot more to evolutionary psychology than, um, um, and, and political psychology than I once thought. And, but one of the problems with all of that is that it's not a rigorous system. It's that there are all sorts of rules of thumb to social psychology that have countless exceptions to the rule because people are complicated and people can be exposed to the same stimuli and react in five different ways. And so, so coming up with some, what's the guy from the foundation? Um, Harry, Harry Seldon. Yeah. Some Harry Seldon, all explanatory, you know, unified field theory about this kind of stuff is impossible. And it seems to me that like, like we're learning more and more. That's the same thing true with actually biological medicine is, you know, enormous number of the studies have been done basically on white men, you know, and I'm not making some diversity point on the politics side, but it just seems to me that like you want to pad out the sample, right. Of tests, you know? (laughs) Yeah. My, my wife and, you know, I, since she's a character in the book we've been talking about, I can put in a plug for her own funniest straight man Um, in the history of comedic writing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she <laughs> she uh she wrote a book about um the science of the maternal instinct that came out earlier this year called mom genes and mm-hmm. it starts with a version of that which is that the male body was just used as like the scientific default in almost all research until you know 30 years ago right, right. and uh as you may have noticed although it is contested obviously at the moment <laughs> the the female body and the male body are somewhat different um and this is also something that happens with chronic illness. Women are more likely to get chronic illnesses. And there is endless debate about why that is. Is it something to do with the female immune system and, you know, what it what it does, you know, during pregnancy? Is it a sort of sociological phenomenon where men are taught to sort of be tough and not go to the doctor when they feel crappy? Women are more likely to seek help. And yeah, there's all all kinds of and these are unanswered questions, right? And there are all kinds of these kind of complexities to, to me though. So I'm curious about your change of mind, right? Because mm-hmm. I've just been fascinated by how that kind of social psychology has played out in the COVID era, because if you just take the crude version of some of those arguments um, and hate and bloom are much more sophisticated than this, but the crude version of the sort of conservative versus liberal psychology, right? Would say to you, you know, when a pandemic hits, conservatives are going to panic about it. Because it's, you know, it's a threat. It's a, it's a biological threat that triggers these deep-seated conservative fears about purity and bodily integrity. And liberals who are, you know, cosmopolitan um, are, are going to be, you know, less, less triggered by it, right? And if you look back at, like, how the Ebola scare went under Obama... That was basically how it went. Conservatives freaked out. Liberals were like, oh, you know, why are the conservatives freaking out about this? And for like the first month of COVID, that was how it went too. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, all the COVID alarmists were, you know, extreme right wingers on the internet. Mm -hmm. And liberals were all like, this is xenophobia, right? But then it flips. And for the last, you know, year and change, we've been living in a world where the conservative position is you know, this sort of is like hyper civil libertarian, um, you know, my body, my choice. And right. the liberal position is, you know, what liberals would call necessary public health and what conservatives have started calling liberal fascism. And I don't have a 
I think there are a lot of different reasons why that happened, but it seems to me to like, you know, call into question any kind of sort of reduct too reductive social psychology view of this stuff, right? Like, or even my own book, my book, when I started getting into this stuff, you know, it's a book about having a weird chronic illness and doing a lot of weird things to treat it. That sounds like a hippie, crunchy, <laughs> left-wing book, right? In certain ways. Right. But it's, but in the, not just because I'm a conservative columnist, but in the context of COVID era debates, it get it's, I, there have been reviews that are like, oh man, you know, these conservative white men, <laughs> right? They'll, they'll put anything in their bodies. Ivermectin, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this is another, this is, this is sort of right wing medical weirdness. And, and it's, I, I don't know, I, I just find I have been fascinated, independent of my own medical mm -hmm. experiences, though obviously they play into it by like that, you know, the, the COVID era right is not what I would have predicted based on where the right was. It's not even what you would have predicted based on like what, you know, your, your favorite, your favorite right wing populist integralists, you know, the sort of like idea of like a common good conservatism that Jonah Goldberg is not a fan of. Right. That would have seemed to predict that conservatives would be militantly pro-vaccine. Exactly. But yeah, that's yeah, yeah. No, I agree. not yeah. what's happened. No, and that's, I mean, that's one of the hilarious things about this is, and I have an answer to your, I have a partial, I, I have a response to your question, but, um, but just on the common good thing, it's very funny to me to watch these people who are for this, you know, common good, uh, social solidarity, you know, post-liberal integralist nationalist kind of uh, worldview, um, hitching their bandwagon to a Gadsden flag wielding populist libertarian movement and saying, these are our people, right? And, um, uh, you know, so you have Sorab who's in favor of vaccine mandates in theory, celebrating the working class revolution of Southwest Airlines employees refusing to get vaccinated as proof of this movement to come. And, um, and I think it is just a, a tendency of it, it's, it's the seductiveness that our arena and a bunch of people have fallen into of thinking, okay, this political mass enthusiasm is, um, my ticket to power and I'm going to ride it. And even if the assumptions of the people you're writing are in fundamental conflict with your philosophical positions. But and we can put that aside for two seconds. So I agree with you. It is entirely, if you were, if you were trying to sort of take these things as sort of proofs in a mathematical equation or geometric, you know, geometry thing and predict where people would come out, I think you're absolutely right. You would think conservatives who are more uh, according to Height and others, attuned to notions of political hygiene, they really don't like the idea of foreigners with disease. I'm not, and, and, and I'm not casting aspersions on anybody. These are natural human responses, and they disperse themselves in different ways across the spectrum. I, I want to be clear that those would have been correct human responses in yeah. February of 2000. For for sure, for sure, right. So, but and and I think that. You know, it's very interesting. You like to run the counterfactual of like in the parallel dimension where Rubio is, you know, running against Hillary. I think the counterfactual of and, and Bloom agrees with me on this, that if Trump were reelected, you would see a lot more anti-vax stuff on the left. 
and you would see a lot more pro-vax stuff on the right. And that gets to part of my explanation is, you know, uh, uh, John Tooby, the sort of founder of evolutionary psychology, has, has this argument of this thing called the coalitional instinct. And we'll put it in the show notes. He has a great essay on this from a few years ago. Um, and it's part of my Rosetta Stone explanation for um or my unified field theory explanation for what happened to the right which i loved your response from for response to about the trump era is that and i'm sure you remember this even though you were you know understandably distracted in 2015 and 2016 in our circles broadly speaking on the right it was very difficult to find anybody in private conversation who was actually convinced trump was a 3d strategist that he was you know 3d chess player that he was um a decent person that he was a moral person that he was um a sophisticated person but in public they would or they so they, they would, a lot of them would concede that kind of stuff but then they would say look the alternative is hillary it's binary choice it's transactional we'll get this we'll get that you made similar arguments i made similar i mean i i totally get the argument right and um and Part of my theory is that, first of all, coalition instincts allow human brains to overlook vast inconsistencies in their own team while being hyper-attentive to them in the other team. So that's why, that's why hypocrisy is one of the defining modalities of public argumentation today, is that we notice when the other side violates the rules all the time, but we're completely oblivious to or disparaging or dismissive of when our own team violates the same rules and we come up with all sorts of permission structures to justify it because once you're part of the coalition, you're part of the coalition. And this is why, um, you know, things like slavery stopped bothering Americans to a certain extent. Once neither coalition practiced slavery, even though slavery still exists and lots of still existed in other parts of the world, it's no longer defining what the Crips believe. So I don't care anymore. Right. Or the Shelby villains or whatever. And add into it another psychological dynamic, which is that we have a very hard time as human beings believing that our leader, the leader of our tribe, the big man, whatever, is a bad person. We are willing to make that argument in the abstract at a moment of decision, but in the general proposition, over time, we tend to redefine our values to fit those of the guy running the show. And I think there's lots of reasons you can imagine why in evolutionary psychology that would be the case. And so over time, what people found to be tolerable downsides to Trump became shining features of Trump. And, um, and the reason why all of this can get so complicated and so weird is that our brains are like computers with a dozen different apps or a hundred different apps running and capable of running. And sometimes these apps are in conflict and sometimes some apps override other, other apps, but the apps of sort of coalition instinct and not wanting to believe that you are loyal to and following a leader who is immoral, I think are the two things that sort of define or drive a big chunk of the transformation of the right. So what do you think of that? I, I mean, I think you, on, on the last point that definitely sort of observing changes in sort of conservative rhetoric and politics in the Trump era 
you can see basically a version of that happening where it was just really, really hard to sustain the view that Trump is a bad person and shouldn't have been the nominee for president. And I wish there was some alternative to him. But, you know, I'm going to vote for him over Hillary, but I will continue to criticize him and hold him to account. It is really hard to sustain that combination once he is actually in office and sort of the permanent leader of your faction. And there's just, yeah, there is just this sort of tremendous incentive to decide, maybe not even that like he's the greatest man in history, but just that he's at least pretty good, right? I Mm -hmm. I think, Um, you know, and I mean, you see this, right? Like, you know, there were many, many uh, religious conservatives who, um, you know, started out being, anti-Trump, or at least not particularly pro-Trump, were sort of reassured when Mike Pence became his running mate. Um, But by the time there were these opportunities to literally replace Trump with Pence, there were repeated opportunities. I mean, you know, a a literal impeachment and other sort of secondary opportunities. That idea became this sort of, you know, horrifying idea, right? That, you know, is connected to fear of the liberals, right? To replace, if the liberals want to replace Trump with Pence, then obviously you can't do that because that's mm-hmm. a victory for the liberals. But also, yeah, we're, we're connected to a gradual, a gradual shift from the belief that Trump is, you know, the least bad of two bad options to a belief that he's a positive good. Um, so that, that's totally, totally real. Um, I'm though also interested though in like how, you know, like you said, there are a lot of different apps running, right? And that's right. maybe not the not you know not the ideal metaphor, but to run with it for a minute. Like I'm also interested in the other apps, right? Like there's there's an there's a, there's a way in which you know the way that Trump presidency, Trump would not have been the Republican nominee twenty or thirty years ago. The Trump presidency wouldn't have played out the same way, and neither would the COVID era debates, right? So there's there's like a baseline conservative alienation from systems of sort of cultural prestige and influence and sort of bureaucratic power in this country that has accelerated over and accelerated during the Trump presidency that also contributes to both. It strengthens that sort of rallying around Trump himself because he's mm-hmm. the only person standing against this sort of unified field progressivism in elite culture And it contributes to the level of skepticism about, you know, whatever Anthony Fauci has to say or the vaccines, right? Like, so I do think that had Trump been reelected, there would have been less vaccine skepticism on the right and more on the left. But I also think that vaccine skepticism has migrated from the left to the right a bit for reasons that are independent of Trump and have to do with the two coalitions relationships to institutional authority Mm -hmm. in the Mm -hmm. United States. I think that shift is real. Um, And then also, like, I'm curious about the constraints on Trump, right? Like this question about sort of common good conservatism versus libertarian conservatism. I'm not sure that even had he wanted to as president, that Trump could have gone sort of like, you know, could have become the full face of, um, you know, public health lockdowns, right? I I do think there are things on the American right that are stronger than I really maybe understood before the pandemic, because I've always been of the view that the right is 
less libertarian and more populist than uh, including a lot of libertarians during the Tea Party era wanted to think. Right. But there did seem to me to be this kind of like, you know, fundamentally just very American folk libertarian, don't tread on me, don't tell me what to do kind of mentality that Trump ultimately sort of leaned into and stoked, but also seemed to sort of exist independent of what he did and mm -hmm. exists in right wing vaccine hesitancy also or anti-vaccine mandates feelings yeah. on the right too, independent of what exactly Trump is is doing. So anyway, yeah, I just think I think there's a lot of I, I'm just in my own mind as someone trying to, you know, write about this, right? Like figuring out which piece is most important is always is always a hard a hard thing and it's but it's really interesting to think about like i i hear you and, and again i'm the, the but i should just say up front the apps metaphor i believe is jonathan heights um because like people like to talk about hardwiring and that's not the way our brains work that's one of the reasons i'm trying to make the case it's just a lot more complicated because a lot of these things are in conflict and one protocol or algorithm or whatever you want to call it can overpower a number, another for some fraction of people, but not other fraction of people in some circumstances, but not in other circumstances. So at some point, I think there's a lot of explanatory value to the social psychology or evolutionary psychology stuff, but much less practical applicability than some people would like because these things are, it's like, as you know, like when you, you know, you write about popular culture, if I told you, you know, um, if I was going to say, I'll give you $10,000 to write me a piece about how we are entering in a era of moral restoration based upon what's going on in the popular culture, it would take you an hour and a half to find great examples to prove that case and write a good column on it. If I offered you $10,000 to write the opposite piece, that we are heading into a time of total degeneration and horror, it would take you 20 minutes because you could find the examples to do it, right? There's any complicated phenomenon is going to have enough evidence on either side of a theory of a plausible theory to have some stuff going for it. But like one of the things, I, so, you know, m my views on abortion have, I've spelled them out here before. I am largely a pro-lifer. People hate it when I use a qualifier. Um, but, um, I've surrounded myself for my entire professional life with people, dear friends, right? And people I respect enormously, like Ramesh, Catherine Lopez, and others who are very passionate, sincere pro-lifers. And they still are. And some of them believe in this seamless garment of life argument. And, um, and I respect it. If you had told me that a lot of those people, and I'm not any, not, and none of the people I just named, but people who've been leaders in the pro-life world in a coherent, morally serious, theologically serious argument about it would be joining ranks with the likes of Charlie Kirk, who says you should catch the freedom flu to fight tyranny, or Dennis Prager, who says he's been trying to catch COVID, or even my old friend, William, William Bennett, who spent last spring of 2020 basically saying everyone is overreacting, dismissing COVID, saying, sure, we'll lose 70, 80,000 people like the flu, but maybe not even as bad as the flu. There is a certain harsh, and I would argue, objectively evil thing happening in certain parts of the right 
that says that since the people who are dying tend to be old or obese or have comorbidities, um, that the rest of us should not change our lives at all to protect. And that is a weird thing to see pro-lifers do. And I think that getting back to this apps thing, if heaven forbid, God forbid, this was more like the Spanish flu and kids, healthy kids were the chief culprit, chief victims of this and would most likely to die from catching it. The app of self-preservation stuff would kick in vastly more aggressively and overpower a lot of these politics because a lot of people are willing to put up with performative jackassery when it's about people in old age homes or obese people or people that they don't see, you know, um, it's another thing when you say, when somebody not wearing a mask may kill my toddler and the psycho psychological defense mechanisms there are just much, much more powerful. Um, but so anyway, you take that anywhere you want it about what's happened to the sort of what the damage this has done to the sort of the pro-life argument or, um, you know, the, the biological, the psychological response to those. Well, so. So early in early in the pandemic, um, Rusty Reno, the editor of First Things, wrote several very controversial pieces um, that I, I imagine were examples of what you're criticizing here mm -hmm. um, from from the pro life side. Uh, you know, he's he's obviously the editor of one of the leading anti abortion magazines in America, for which I write. Um, when, when I'm not writing for National Review and the New York Times. And he basically sort of adopted, as a number of conservatives have adopted, arguments associated with, um, originally in certain ways with Michel Foucault and with an Italian sort of Foucaultian, Foucaultian uh, named Giorgio Agamben um, about how, you know, there's sort of this public health state that practices these kind of biopolitics that privilege the preservation of bare life against all other goods and that um you know that this this is sort of an incipiently totalitarian thing that is you know fundamentally opposed to both jewish and christian conceptions of you know the balance that you're supposed to strike um between um you know sort of living life and living in living in fear of death and among the many things that he pointed to was sort of the way that this you know the way that these lockdowns you know sort of seemed to sort of particularly would you know shut down houses of worship um there were all these conflicts between jewish orthodox jewish communities in new york and and public health authorities and so on um and as part of these arguments rusty argued that um basically a version of what I assume, although I don't remember, Bill Bennett was arguing too, that in fact, the, the dangers of the disease were overstated. And there would be probably this sort of initial wave that then would fall off naturally, even without lockdowns. And this was a pretty common argument. Richard um, Epstein was doing a secular version Richard of Epstein this. made yep. the most extreme version, but there were a bunch of Stanford epidemiologists making versions of, of these arguments, predicting relatively low numbers of deaths. And to me, what's, you know, what's striking in, in hindsight, right, is I, I was, I vehemently disagreed with Rusty and I think told him so in emails at the time and 
my columns at the time were mostly strongly in favor of temporary public health measures. Um, I do think that his framework saw a bunch of things coming, right, that have been have been actually a, a real feature of the blue state response to COVID. I think that he anticipated th- what happened during the summertime protests, the Black Lives Matter protests, right, where there was ba- basically there was this kind of religious exemption in that liberal public health authorities made for protests and public gatherings that they agreed with, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So Catholics and Jews can't get together, um, but protesters, pro- anti-racism protesters have this kind of exemption, right? That like the public health rules are sort of subordinate to a, almost, you know, a political theological, a larger progressive political theological vision, right? And, uh, you know, and then there there is a sort of, there is a mentality that, you know, is is actually very powerful as we have, you know, reached, as we have gained vaccines and, you know, a, you know, a lot of blue states now have very low COVID rates. And there is this kind of, you know, this sort of palpable fear of, you know, any kind of threat from COVID that, you know, is keeping kids in masks in schools, I think much longer than they will need to be is mm-hmm. keeping certain measures in place longer than they need to be. And, and, and there is, I, I think, you know, if you look at some of those the sort of Agambenian critique of that, I think it, it, it's real. This has been part of the pandemic has been this sort of, you know, this sort of like, you know, I mean, you see the most extreme form in Australia, right? This sort mm-hmm. of, overzealous public health authority married to a kind of quasi-theological progressivism. So in that sense, part of what Rusty said so controversially, I think was right. But the other half of it, that COVID wasn't that bad and that, you know, and that was, was wrong and was sort of wrong in, I think, a way that ended up, you know, there was just a lot of kind of motivated reasoning among conservatives where they sort of accurately foresaw some of the potential excesses of the public health regime and therefore had to come to the conclusion that the disease itself must be must not be that bad because that way you could say the public health regime isn't just you know isn't just dangerous in its overreach but isn't you know isn't a reasonable response to the pandemic at all um, yeah and there's the only but in fact all the a lot of the public health in fact the disease was that bad. It was pretty close. I mean, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have died. It didn't just sort of wane automatically. Anyway, I'm not I'm not like making an incredibly strong point here. I'm just trying to say that there is a balance like there are reasons that I think religious conservatives especially have looked askance at the ideology interwoven with the public health regime, but the and have been right about some of the big problems with it. But to the extent that that has led to a sort of chronic underestimation of the virus's severity. Um, like if they, if you said to them as Joan, if you said, you know, you're not really saying that, um, you know, we should just let hundreds of thousands of 80 year olds die. There were people who would take that sort of hyper extreme libertarian view, but most of them would say, Oh, but Jonah, you're exaggerating how many people are actually going to die, mm-hmm. right? Like that—that that would have been, I think, and and still is in some circles, right? This idea that we're miscounting the dead or something like that is the the argument that's raised in response to your to your critique. Um, 
And I think it's mistaken, but that it's just sort of, it's just interesting to think about. Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to like claim the complete moral high ground here. I'm sure I got lots of stuff wrong on one level or another over the last 18 months, but I think in the, and I know I'm not saying, I'm not saying you disagree with what I'm about to say. I just think it was left out of your narrative is that the Reno stuff, the Bennett stuff, um, uh, even the Epstein stuff was all also in the context of Democrats taking the pandemic very seriously while Donald Trump did not, right? He objectively right. did not rhetorically, um, you know, he eventually got around, um, to, you know, like warp seed is great and all that kind of stuff. But so the coalition instinct stuff that I was talking about earlier, which, which, which codes very easily just as simply partisanship, um, cause that's how it would manifest itself in a practical way. I had people saying, you know, oh, Democrats are shutting down these places, ruining small businessmen. Donald Trump stands up for the small businessmen. Donald Trump's tweeting, liberate Michigan, all these kinds of things. And so the permission structure or the, the conducive environment to make those arguments to intel, I mean, this is my, my fundamental problem with a lot of the people that I sometimes think I can't quite tell, and people will do that as a closing question, that you're more sympathetic to than I am these days. There is an enormous amount of cleanup work to intellectualize and adorn sort of rank populist Trumpism, nationalism, whatever, with grandiose intellectual theories to make it, you know, it's the, it's the spoonful of eggheadery that makes the medicine go down kind of thing that I find often quite tedious on the right these days. Um, and so like, I thought the epidemiologists who said the black lives matter protests were okay, were outrageous. And it was disgusting. And I said so at the time. And I wrote a, I remember writing a piece headline, The Treason of the Epidemiologist, as a sort of shout out to Julian Benda, yep. because that's what I see. I see Benda's critique of intellectuals all over the place, that people are, are using their mental gifts in our line of work on the left and the right to organize what, the, what Benda said to organize political hatreds. And I did my share of that in my time. I'm exhausted by it. I don't want to do it. Um, I don't think you've ever really done it, um, uh, but like the, you know, it's not good enough that dogs succeed. Cats must also fail. Nature of our um, <laughs> politics. These fail. Well, that's that's yeah. my New Yorker cartoon right over here that my wife had blown up for me. It has two dogs at a bar drinking and says, "It's not enough that we succeed. Cats must also fail." And. Um, <laughs> So that's my critique of the left and the right these days. That's why this podcast is called The Remnant, right? So I'm kind of curious. We can close on this. I'll let you get the last word in. What is your diagnosis right now about the health of the American right? Um, and maybe if you can include why there are some people who seem particularly obsessed that you don't agree with them um, and why that might be. Um, um, I, I would, I think our listeners would love to hear it. Sure. So I, I'm going to answer the first question, um, by, so I think the state of the American right is quite bad. Um, I am not occasionally some of the people who, you know, people who are sort of 
conservatives who are form or former conservatives who are stringent Trump critics will say, you know, Douthat keeps looking for the diamond in the dunghill of right wing <laughs> populism. And I, I do not actually expect to find a, a diamond. Um, you know, I co-wrote a book with our mutual friend Raihan Salam a long time ago, making a case for for right wing populism um, called Grand New Party. Um, I I like to think that there was a better timeline where a healthy right wing populism came to fruition. I could still imagine it happening, but it's not what I see happening now. Um, and I'm going to read a, a quote from a tweet that just passed my screen from, you know, uh, Gladden Papin, who's uh, an old friend of mine from college, who's now a professor at the University of Dallas, and one of the sort of Catholic integralist populists, um, who's probably not high in you, Jonah Goldberg's esteem. And he says, every practical debate on the right now turns around topics like the state, political economy, industrial and family policy, classical law and politics in specific and substantive ways driven by the new right. Um, and I really wish I thought that was true. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that those debates exist. I actually think the Trump years themselves were a really good time to read debates between conservatives in intellectual journals. Um, I think the shock of Trump opened up a lot of spaces for sort of heterodoxy where you weren't just like worried about, you know, Grover Norquist's definition of conservatism before you opened your mouth and you could actually talk more seriously about the post-Reagan problems facing America. All of that's real. Um, I think Gladden works for American Affairs. He's an editor there. I think American Affairs publishes really, really interesting stuff, even when I disagree with it. I just don't see it connecting to actual Republican politics. Mm -hmm. To me, there are these debates that where I'm more likely than you to find them interesting or to agree with, you know, some of the people Gladden calls the new right. But then if you get to the level of actual Republican politics, the argument is about, you know, should we restore Donald Trump to power and crown him with four crowns or five? <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, should we run six audits on the Arizona election or seven audits on the Texas election? Right. Like that. And. and and that is the problem with the bargain that populists made with Trump, where Trump has populist instincts, but doesn't care about populism. He cares about Trump. Right. And, you know, a lot of people, myself included in my optimistic moments, would say like, oh, when if Trump loses in 2020, there'll be an opening for a sort of post Trump republicanism that learns something from him in 2024. But by the way he lost by basically claiming to be the exiled king denied power and having lots of people embrace this idea. Trump has made that impossible. Trump's going to run again. I can see a really narrow path to someone like Ron DeSantis beating him, but they probably won't. And you're not you're not going to get this sort of like brilliant new right populist revival under under Trump. You're going to get what we already saw from him, which, you know, a few good policies, a bunch of bad policies, a general degradation of of our politics. Um so that's 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 my answer to your mm -hmm. how is the right question. There's stuff there in the intelligentsia that could be useful, um, but the state of the right as politics is is bad. Um, I guess the problem that I have is that I I both to the people are are my my friends or former friends I guess in some cases I don't know who are sort of 
militant never Trumpers who think that because that the badness of the right means that the only thing to do in our politics is sort of organize a coalition to defend democracy against the Trumpian fascist menace. My feeling is twofold. On the one hand, I think that Trump is just a different kind of figure than the historical analogies being offered by, you know, folks like Robert Kagan in that epic Washington Post Mm -hmm. op-ed, you know, where the analogies are to Mussolini and Hitler, basically. Um, I think we've seen, Trump has been president. We know what a Trump presidency is like. We know something about what a second Trump presidency is like. It's bad for the republic in many ways, um, but it's not a sort of, I, I don't think it is a coalescing authoritarianism that could actually govern the country, even in the way that Viktor Orban has governed Hungary, let alone the way an actual dictator would, would govern. Um, and I think that's important to keep in mind, even as I do worry about Trump pitching us into an 1876-style constitutional crisis. I think that's a reasonable worry. I just reject the conflation of that with, I reject the conflation of Trump's sort of reality TV showmanship bullshit with, um, you know, the prospect of the transformation of the U.S. into an authoritarian state. Um, And connected to that, I think that the, the, you know, this sort of, you know, the only thing that matters is a coalition against Trump perspective really does understate the extent to which the current rights critique of consolidated progressive power makes a lot of good points. There really is this, I, you know, I, I live in blue America. I work for the New York times. I hang out around Yale university. Like the, I, I, you know, as much as I don't agree with a lot of, you know, what the Claremont Institute puts out, right. There are things that, you know, that are published by the American mind that are sort of about the trajectory of progressivism that I do agree with, or I do worry about. And I think it is a, a threat of its own kind that has to be part of any, you have to write about it. If you're a writer, you have to take it seriously. And you can't just subsume that problem into a narrative where, you know, Trump's about to go about to go full, full Hitler and take over. Um, anyway, that's very long. That's a very long answer. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, and, there's a lot of stuff I agree with in there. There's a lot of stuff I really disagree with in there. I think Kagan is directionally right, but analytically flawed for some of the reasons that you suggest. Um, but I think your argument is analytically flawed insofar as I don't think a second Trump term would look very much like a first Trump term in part because the people that would come work for a second Trump for term have been, will have been, would have been, uh, radicalized to Trumpist nonsense for almost eight years. So a Stephen Miller is chief of staff, maybe. Um, and the kind of people who would fill his cabinet full of sycophants, the kind of people he'd be inclined to put on the Supreme Court since he was betrayed by the the good conservatives he put on the Supreme Court. And, it, you know, one of the problems was saying he's not, you know, like my joke has been for five years now, you know, Donald Trump isn't Hitler. Hitler could have repealed Obamacare. But um, <laughs> the, 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 yes, the, the, the fact is one can fall well, like many, many experts on this field have found that one can fall far short of being Hitler and still be really bad. And, um, uh, and Trump unencumbered by a concern of running again, full of vengeance and anger towards the people who he thinks betrayed him 
you know, he now thinks Bob Barr was in on some sort of coup kind of thing to get Bill, Bill Barr. Bill Barr, yeah. Well, maybe Bob Barr, Bill, too. Bob Barr right. may also have been in yeah. on it, but... Yeah. Um, you know, the people who, uh, you know, you have you have guys who actually were part of the riot in the Capitol, um, like the riot riot, um, running for Congress, and um, with a with a almost octogenarian Donald Trump full of lizard brain stuff, uh, he doesn't have to be an effective authoritarian to do truly terrible things to the country and give permission to a whole and power to a whole bunch of terrible, very smart people who have been getting moving into closer and closer orbit with Trump for a very long time. And one of my big critiques and I, I would I would include you. I would include some of my best friends in the world, all people who I respect immensely, and think of are talented, deep, sincere, decent people. Um, but there is a creeping kind of popular front mentality that has taken over the right. It's also taken over the Never Trumpers, right? Who want to find common cause with Democrats. I mean, I, I, God love I, I love Mona. She's very mad at me these days. But she's talking about how she agrees with Noam Chomsky on stuff right now. That should be a red flag. And um, uh, a, very, a very red flag. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, a red banner, in fact. And so, like, um, but there are a bunch of people, uh, you know, I've had this argument with Charlie Cook. I love Charlie, who think the greatest part of it is what's the greatest threat? Is it this cohesive, unified, woke left that you're talking about, which I agree entirely with you, is a real threat to all sorts of things I cherish and hold dear? Or is it the slow transformation of the right in the ranks to something that is the, re as you were talking about Thomas Kuhn, is the replacement paradigm that I don't want and that I think would be argue conceivably worse because if conservatives are no longer willing to conserve sort of a, a basic sort of Whiggish, Toryish American conservatism, that has a healthy dose of classical liberalism to it and subsidiarity and federalism and all these other, if we've law, if we lose the ability to conserve that, then we're just in a situation where, um, it's two statist parties at war for power. And, um, and that would, that to me is much more, a much more dangerous situation. And the old Buckleyite emphasis on calling out the BS on our own side has fallen by the wayside for a lot of people. I don't think for a moment that a lot of the people that you read in, I wouldn't say the American mind, because I think they've published some truly terrible things, but like in the American interest or, you know, these various people, I don't think that they're all in on the idea that, that the riot in the Capitol was a deep state, uh, you know, fake with crisis actors and all of this nonsense. But I don't see a lot of those people saying this is nonsense. I don't see a lot of these people calling it out. I mean, I, Candace Owens says that that she's not going to get the vaccine because she's not going to give into the the worst state driven fear campaign in human history. If you think the effort to get people vaccinated is the most dangerous state driven fear campaign in human history, you literally know nothing about human history. And there is this popular front attitude on the right that says it's not worth calling out the crazies on my side so long as there's so many crazies on the other side that we can all agree are crazy. And I, I apologize because I told you I was going to give you the last word and then I had that monologue. So you may, may reply. I, I, I think I would just say that I, 
I, I actually would like, I said this, I think before the show when we were chatting, but I, I think some of this is an argument um, among people who think of themselves as remaining conservative while also being against not just Trump himself, but some of the worst parts of Trumpism, which I think some of them you've just identified. And it's a hard place to be. That's why I have sympathy. There's there's just this question. There's a question of, there's a question of, of strategy here. Right. And I think part of, as someone who, again, you know, I write for a liberal audience, mostly I operate in these sort of, you know, elite liberal spaces in a lot of cases. I, I, I look at the sort of popular front to save democracy against Trump approach and I see it as sort of trying to, you know, in a way, consolidate a victory that the never Trump side already won in mm-hmm. the sense that like the never Trump side really did succeed in getting a lot of the kind of Republicans who, you know, belong to the New York Times reading upper middle class to 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 vote against Trump or even to switch parties outright. We'll see how permanently that switch is in the Yunkin uh, McAuliffe race in 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 Virginia, but um, you know, to to the extent that sort of unifying elite opinion against Trump is a strategy that can move votes and change American politics, it did that, mm-hmm. and yet it still was not sufficient because it created this, you know, in effect counterbalancing reaction of you know increasing certain kinds of populist alienation from the elite, you know, I think encouraging certain chronic elite blind spots, both centrist and liberal that manifested themselves throughout the Trump era. And so you sort of ended up instead of pulling that off and driving Trumpism into the outer darkness, you pulled it off and the country stayed basically 50 50. Um, So I feel like never Trumpism needs a, a different theory or different strategy. Um, and I have, I'm not, you know, I mean, my own view of what that has been is to sort of argue for, you know, sort of effectively offer advice to liberals on how they could make liberalism less disastrous Mm -hmm, in mm -hmm. certain ways and offer advice to whatever exists within the Republican party on how they could be out, how they could have a healthy populism. That's sort of what I've tried, what I've tried to do. And I don't think that's, I'm not arguing that that has worked (laughs) Except no, no, except I, insofar as nominating Joe Biden rather than Elizabeth Warren, yeah, that was a yeah, good idea yeah. by the Democrats, right? Yeah. I don't see it sort of working. As I said, I'm pretty pessimistic about the right, um, but I just don't. I don't see the like coalition of all elites against Trumpist darkness. I see that as a strategy that's achieved what it can and is sort of hitting the wall of you know, being an elite coalition in an age of disgust with elites. So yeah. anyway, and I, I, that's I just, my last word. No, that's fair. I just, I, I just, and I just don't like strategy talk to begin with. Like I, that's what I've given up on is I'm just going to do my piece and let the chips fall where they may. Regardless, uh, we're running long and I actually have to record another podcast in a moment. So yes. I, I want to thank you Ross sure. for doing this. It yeah. was great to talk. Um, love to have you back in the studio at some point. Um, and that's uh, the dream. The book yes. is once the, once we once we shake free of the you know the biopolitics. That's right. That we we will be we will be together again. Now, thank you so much for doing this. I the medico industrial state, as someone told me. Um, the the book is the deep places: a memoir of illness and discovery. And uh, 
Again, Ross, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me, Jonah. Be well. Okay. Uh, just going to say, I want to be totally transparent with my listeners. I'm actually recording this close several hours after um, my conversation with Ross because we had a second podcast to do this morning um, that we were running late for. And so if I had some scintillating, uh, synthesizing uh, summations in mind while we were talking, they've long since been forgotten. Um, but it was great to talk to Ross, and I hope I hope everyone understood where I was coming from with the joking about his suffering and all that kind of stuff. Um, I think Ross is a singular talent and and a mensch, even though we you know, disagree on some esoteric things. Um, but it was great to talk to him, and I I I hope the recovery continues, and I hope he'll come back soon. Um, and other than that. I'm sure I'll have further thoughts on all of this soon enough. It's not like many of these issues are going away. Um, so thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Hold on, I want to pick up on that, but um, I want to close this window. You know, the sure sign that um, podcasters in this country do not have the power they think they do is the prevalence of leaf blowers. <laughs> Hold on one second. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.